Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm battling a flu. So fortunately for you, the episode you're about to listen to was actually recorded before the flu set in. So you only have to listen to this part of me for a little bit. But this is episode 92, and it's on Tudor Wales. And I'm talking to Nathan Amin. He is the founder of the Henry Tudor Society. He's also written a book called Tudor Wales. And even more important to me, I suppose, because I'm selfish like that, is that he and I are putting together a tour of Tudor Wales this coming spring, late April, early May of 2018. So in this episode, we're going to talk about Tudor Wales in general, and the tour that we're putting together specifically as well. So it's going to be lots of great information about places to go in Tudor Wales and some of the great stories behind some of these places. Now, if you're interested in coming on the tour with us, please go to englandcast.com slash tours, englandcast.com slash tours, and I'll put a note or I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. So it will be easy enough for you to find. Um, but englandcast.com slash tours has all of the full itinerary, the pricing, everything like that, what's included all of it. Um, so please go there and check that out if you want to come to Tudor Wales with Nathan and myself this coming spring. I'm not going to do my full admin that I normally do because this episode's really long and I'm losing my voice already. <laughs> but I will just remind you that the Agora Podcast Network is actually available for advertising. The member podcasts in Agora receive nearly a million downloads a month together. So if you have an audience that you think fits in with our listenership, they're people who are into history, they're smart, they're well-read, they're people who are into politics, lots of different podcasts, they're part of our network. Check out agorapodcastnetwork.com to learn more and to find out the advertising rates, everything like that. Also, people who download and listen to Agora Podcast Network podcasts are much better looking than average podcast listeners. Just saying. And this is normally the part where I read out my amazing Patreon supporters. And I do love you guys, but I'm not going to read them all out right now because this is a really long episode and the aforementioned losing of my voice. But with that said, I want to welcome my newest Patreon supporter, Olivia. Thank you so much. And also, Al, you're amazing. You just upped your support. So thank you so much. If you love this show, and if you want to support independent podcasting, go over to patreon.com slash englandcast and find out how you can support the show for as little as a dollar an episode. So now I'm going to jump right into my interview with Nathan, and you're going to hear all about Tudor Wales. Again, englandcast.com slash tours to find out about the tour. What can you tell me about the 
the early Tudors in Wales and kind of where the House of Tudor comes from, as it were, and and there's stories of these Welsh princes and everything like that. Can you, what can you tell me about them? Well, I, I mean, the two things that we need to consider when we discuss the Tudors, obviously, there's so many different uh, lines of ancestry. Uh, you know, each of us have got, uh, what is it, four grandparents and so on. Um, the, the two lines that I really focus on when I discuss the Welsh Tudors uh, is really, it goes through their father's line, so the, well, their grandfather's line, Owen Tudor, because, uh, of course, Henry Tudor was not wholly Welsh descended in that, you know, he's got French and English ancestry as well. But the, his father's father, so the patrilineal line of descent, if you want, the the Welsh side. The Tudors themselves, going back in the male line, come from Anglesey, uh, an island off the north west of Wales. It's a bit, you know, we're, we're kind of backporting a little bit when we call them the Tudors, because the Welsh didn't go by surnames then. They were, you know, they followed a system, whereas, for example, Owen Tudors, authentic name would be Owain Ap Meredith, which uh-huh. is Owen, son of Meredith. Yeah. So it wasn't really a Tudor as we would perhaps consider a surname, but certainly the farm, the father's line were all based around the small Welsh village of Penmanith on Anglesey. Mm. And in particular, at the end of the 14th century, there were five brothers which, for argument's sake, we now call the Tudors of Penmanev, because their father was, his first name was Tudor. So, for example, his children were Rhys Ap Tidir, Gwilym Ap Tidir, Meredith Ap Tidir, and so on. So the five brothers all were, you know, Meredith, son of Tudor. So we call them the Tudors of Penmanev, because it's just easier to use. Now, these five brothers, they were, by, by 1400, there were three surviving, Gwilym, Rhys, and Maredev. And they became involved in the Owain Glyndwr Welsh Wars of Independence. Owain, you know, today is a Welsh hero. I often, because of Hollywood, perhaps the easiest way to describe him is the Welsh William Wallace, you know, leading this national rising against the English, uh, which failed. But... The, the, the three Tudor brothers, surviving Tudor brothers, were his first cousins. So they joined his rebellion and they became his closest allies throughout the 10-year rebellion. The problem was, was that this rebellion failed. Owen Glyndwr disappeared into hiding. Nobody knows whatever happened to him. And the two, two of the brothers were caught and executed. That left one brother, uh, Maredith Aptidir. We don't really know what happened to him, but it seems that he died during the the rebellion. He left a son called Owen. Now, Wales, uh, after the collapse of the rebellion, had been destroyed. You know, uh, what hadn't been set on fire by uh, Owen Glyndwr had been set on fire by the English king. So, you know, you pretty much had a war going on and the entire country got raised to the ground. So there was and no was the English king at this time for people. Uh, that would have been Henry the Fourth. Now, now the Tudors were, uh, ironically, for how you know the English royal descent went, were loyal to Richard the uh, Second, and so is Owen Glyndwr. It's quite probably far too complex to go into on a podcast, <laughs> but 
that you know the, the Welsh uprising happened pretty much exactly as Richard II got deposed. Mm. So the Lancastrians came onto the English throne. The Tudors were against the Lancastrians, which mm. can be quite confusing when later on we consider how the Tudors became the Lancastrians right. in effect. But but basically what happened was there was nothing left in Wales for a young boy known as Owen. Uh, mm. He had no, you know, his family had been wiped out. Uh, we don't know what happened to his mother, and there was no opportunity. So you find at this time quite a few Welshmen had no option that other than to join up with Henry the Fourth's army in France and just go off and fight war because their country had been burned to the ground. Mm. Owen seems to have moved to London, uh, and it's from there really that the Tudor story as English royal families kicked off, and that Owen then goes on to meet. Catherine of Valois, etc. So we got these these Tudors on the one side, uh, and they themselves gone further back in this in this line uh, were the sons, you know, the sons, grandsons, etc. of a guy called Ednafed Vachan. Uh, Ednafed was probably the most powerful man in North Wales for a period in the 13th century, other than the princes of Wales at that time. Uh, one of whom is known as Llewellyn the Great. So he was basically his his prime minister, his uh, you know his chief counselor. Now, Wales, generally speaking, was it was never really ruled as one country as we know it today. Generally speaking, it was a North Welsh, uh, North Welsh kingdom and a South Welsh kingdom. So these Tudors were of the North Welsh kingdom, and at best through Ednafed Vachan, they became effectively prime ministers. You know, the main servant to the princes. Mm-hmm. But Ednafed married the daughter of a South Welsh king called the Lord Rhys, Rhys Ap Griffith. So through her, and her name was Princess Gwenchian, mm-hmm. Ednafed's blood had maternal kingly descent. And, and through Gwenchian, they were descended from all the great ancient Welsh kings going back, you know, the 9th century, 8th century and so on. Uh, famous kings such as Howelvar, Rodri Maur, uh, and a guy called Rhys Ap Tudor. Uh, perhaps there's a suggestion that uh, the, the Tudor name that the North Welsh lot used, Ednafet's descendants, was perhaps in homage to the South Welsh king. So it's very much because of a, a marriage by you know, they weren't common, the North Welsh Tudors, but they themselves weren't the royalty. They married in, in effect. But I still gave them the connection all the way back to all the ancient Welsh kings. And beyond there, you tend to get into the legendary Welsh kings then, you know, King Arthur and so on, which is where Henry Tudor eventually said, I am, you know, Arthur's heir and so on. So it's through that particular link, Princess Gwenchian and Ednafed Vachan in the 13th century that the Tudors ultimately claimed to be the great descendants of Welsh kings. I see. And so it's the, the best thing I can recommend is Wikipedia and checking out some family trees. Right. Uh, it's quite, quite a handy resource for that. I know it's, you know, it's not perhaps the best uh, source, etc., but it's correct as far as I recognise it. Easier to see the names, really, I think, than to hear me say them if you're not Welsh speaking. <laughs> Although it's lovely to hear you say them in an authentic accent. So, <laughs> wonderful. Thank you. So, um, 
Okay, so we've got Owen, Owen, and he is in France. And tell me what happened to him after that. And um, how did he get like? How did he get to be working with Catherine of Valois as the keeper of her wardrobe? I think it was. How did that happen? The one problem we have with Owen Tudor is it's very much a case of perhaps, maybe, you know, it's it's real. I'd say educated guesswork but ultimately none of us are going to have the, the the guaranteed answers you know there's a lot of myths and a lot of romanticized notions of Owen Tudor that built up that have become these quote facts unquote mm-hmm. um the more likely from, from what I can gather the most likely route of this was he served in France under a guy called Sir Walter Hungenford who is quite a high up captain in Henry V's French army Walter Hangenford had connections with uh, Catherine de Valois. He, I believe he was in a household for a while. Um, and he himself was pretty much based around the Windsor area, which is where Catherine, uh, retired probably seems the wrong word for a woman who was only 22, 23 years old. But after the death of her husband, Henry V, that's where she effectively was sent to live, uh, Windsor Castle. Uh-huh. It seems probable that... Owen Tudor, who was serving Walter Hungerford, got some kind of route in to the Queen's household. There doesn't seem to be any obvious reason why this, you know, random Welshman of no noble title, um, of no particular wealth, should suddenly have become so prominent in the household, other than, you know, an almost act of nepotism. You know, he must have had a master or a a, a colleague or a, an ally in quite higher place to get in this inn. Mm-hmm. And I see Walter Hangenford is the, is the obvious link. Mm-hmm. So whatever his actual role and his prominence in Catherine de Valois' household, he got in and he must have, you know, charmed her or must have made himself noticeable somehow, some way, of which, unfortunately, we don't have any actual knowledge. It obviously worked wherever he did. Mm-hmm. Whatever he did. Yeah, so there's the secret marriage. So we're actually starting off our tour in Windsor. What Can you tell me anything about what we know about his life in Windsor other than that he made Catherine Valois fall in love with him? Basically, yes, you've hit the nail on the head. We've got a couple of these legends that have built up about him, about how he met her. One odd one being that... Uh, he was swimming one day in, in a pond and Queen Catherine, she came across him with her servant and she saw him and she seems to have um, fancied him a little bit. Mm-hmm. And the story goes, I stress there's no real contemporary evidence of this. It's pretty much comes from the Tudor era. So how much those writers were just trying to create this romantic story between, you know, their king's ancestors but the one story goes that she decided to put on her servant's clothes and go down and see Owen Tudor. And he was perhaps a bit hasty in his amorous feelings for her, and he seems to have cut her on the on the cheek. The next day at dinner, when he was supposedly serving her, he noticed it was actually the queen who had the cut on her cheek, which seemed a very weird way of starting a relationship, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and perhaps doesn't seem very romantic to us, though. He, you know, he, he he cut the queen and she fell in love with him. Yeah. Uh, the other story goes, perhaps the most famous one, is that uh, he simply got drunk at 
at some sort of royal ball and fell into her lap. And she supposedly took a fancy to him. Uh, and the BBC does seem big... that attractive, really. Yeah, it, it, it's a bit... <laughs> I mean, I, I could see how they could perhaps... Ja- and I have read how they j- can jazz it up in some uh, historical fictions. Yeah. Uh, but, but the very basis of them... Uh, I mean, I, I would probably speculate myself that he was in the household. They would have interacted. And it's just, you know, as, as we do today, we perhaps might go to work or we might go to some form of, um, you know, communal gathering, I don't know, a, a conference or a meeting, and you just start speaking to one another and you just, you know, it, it progresses from there. You have the obvious issue of the different levels in society, but at the end of the day, you know, these people at these balls, at these meals, they wouldn't have passed them without communication. You know, there would have been times where she's perhaps walking around the local parks she wouldn't have been doing that alone. She would have had her, her household around her. Uh, what I particularly like is the BBC newsreader, uh, Hugh Edwards. He did a programme a couple of years ago called The Story of Wales. Uh, and he summed her up as, you know, she was, at a, she was at a ball, he got drunk, he fell on her lap, they fell in love. And he summarised it simply as saying, that's the Welsh charm. And maybe it was. Maybe Owen Tewitt just had a bit of Welsh charm and he... You know, talked to the Queen and she fell in love with him. Unfortunately, we will not know for 100%. So then they had a secret wedding and they had their children. And when we're doing our tour, the next place we're going after we start at Windsor, we're going to Raglan Castle. Um, What can you tell me about Raglan Castle and how that kind of fit in with the stories of the Tudors? Well, Raglan Castle is one of the most well, f- fantastic ruins in all of the UK. It's quite unique in that it was built, you know, in the in the early to mid 15th century. So it's one of the last great uh, medieval castles that was built before they moved on to becoming more pleasure palaces. And it was built in, in the French style. Uh, and perhaps there's a, a speculation that it was built, for, it was built by a guy called... Um, William Ap Thomas, a Welshman, and he was serving in France. So there's some sort of speculation he perhaps saw these wonderful hexagonal type castles in France and decided to build his own. Because mm. anyone who's been to Raglan, if you just Google the pictures, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about when you look at the gatehouse. It's unlike anything else in the UK. Um, it, it was described in uh, during the Elizabethan age, you know, 1587, it was described by one writer as a rare and noble site. And I think it still is. You know, four or five hundred years later, it is, you know, it is noble and it certainly is rare. Raglan Castle enters the Tudor story in that at four years old, Henry Tudor was, uh, the Yorkists took the throne in 1461, when Henry Tudor was just four years old. Mm. His bloodline, he was a youth who could perhaps be of danger to the Yorkists down the line. So he was given as a ward to a man called William Herbert of Raglan. Mm-hmm. Um, and effectively, he moved into Raglan. And, he, and Henry Tudor lived in Raglan between the ages of four years old and 12 years old. His guardian. William Herbert, 
and it was there that he was educated. It was there that he was brought up. If any place we can really call his childhood home, it's going to be Raglan. You know, Raglan Castle is where he developed. The man he eventually became owes a lot to his upbringing. He was educated in, uh, you know, he, he studied the, the classics. He possibly studied Welsh or learned Welsh at the time. He learned martial arts. Everything he learned, he was brought up as a noble child at Raglan. So this is the one place really we can consider uh, his childhood home. It's, it's where he was bred. You have one particular tower, which is known as the Great Tower of Gwent, uh, Gwent being the region it's in, and you can still climb to the top of that and you get incredible views over the mountain range that's nearby. You know, you can see for many miles from the top of that gatehouse. Wow. You also have the surviving Elizabeth, because obviously, you know, these castles didn't stop with sure. the 15th century. They got reinvented. And there's a great, the, the Great Hall was rebuilt in the Elizabethan age. And it's got these incredibly large mullioned windows. I mean, it is fantastic. So although it's still a ruin, because the windows are almost still intact, you can really picture what it must have been like, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the light that would have come in. They've got a cobbled gate yard, um, a courtyard rather. And, you know, Raglan Castle is truly one of the best castles in the UK. And I include all of them in that, you know, whether it's Windsor Castle, Bamborough Castle, Raglan Castle is definitely up there. And like I said, if you've never seen it, give it a Google and you'll, you'll see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so then um, that was Henry... The next day we're going to Carmarthen, huh? Did I say that right, Carmarthen? Uh, Carmarthen. Marthen. Carmarthen. The difference with the Welsh is that we tend to put our emphasis on different parts of the words that might seem obvious to English speakers. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, so Carmarthen, I would say. Carmarthen. And um, that's the oldest town in Wales, right, you said? And tell me about that's more for Henry's father, for Edmund. Tell me about the role that that played for them. Well, this uh, Carmarthen does, uh, and the story of Edmund Tudor fits in very well with Raglan, if in reverse, in that the reason Henry Tudor ended up at Raglan is because of what happened in Carmarthen. Uh, Edmund Tudor, around about 1455, 1456, you know, the Wars of the Roses were just about to erupt. There was a lot of uh, factional discord going on in England. You know, the Yorkists and the Lancastrians were aligning. Edmund Tudor was, you know, he, he was the half-brother of Henry VI. So Henry VI was where his his, um, his allegiances lay. Now, we're a, a large section of Wales, you know, the area in South southeast Wales was Yorkist land. Mm -hmm. uh, West Wales... Carmarthen and beyond was Lancastrian land. Mm. So Carmarthen was very much a frontier town. And Edmund Tudor was sent down there as a son of a Welshman to make sure the area remained loyal to the Lancastrians. Mm. Now, of course, this didn't play very well with Richard of York. Um, mm. You know, he, he wanted to make a point. So he hired thousands of Welshmen under the uh, command of William Herbert of Raglan to go to Carmarthen and capture the castle. And there was a big siege there 
between Edmund Tudor in Carmarthen Castle and Sir William Herbert outside. Mm-hmm. Um, William Herbert was successful. He captured the castle and Edmund Tudor was actually imprisoned in the castle over which he was supposed to be captain. Mm-hmm. Now, three months later, Edmund Tudor dies. Now, the the sources are a bit vague, and many people will say that Edmund Tudor simply died of the plague. Uh-huh. But nothing about the plague is mentioned at the time. I don't know where it comes from. It just seems to be one of these facts. Okay. Um, and you see everywhere. You see, you know, you see it in many top historians' work. People just say he died of the plague. But yeah. again, I've, I've never actually found any evidence of that. I speculate, without proof, I must say, that if he was released after a couple of months of siege in, you know, he was captured and imprisoned for three months and then he was given his release, allegedly, in August and died in November. You know, who's to say that he didn't suffer some kind of wounds from uh, being, you know, being under siege? Maybe he did die of the plague, but it was a plague that was, you know, brought on by being stuck in a dungeon or at least being kept captive and not being given his full freedom. The point being that at 26 years old, Edmund Tudor died. I mean, and that's, that's a premature death. Would he have died if he hadn't been attacked by the Yorkists? Possibly not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously what's happened there is that Edmund Tudor's died because of an attack on him led by Sir William Herbert, mm-hmm. who then... Raises you know for four years four years later is given the wardship of Henry Tudor. So Henry Tudor then grew up at Raglan Castle, effectively in the household of the man probably responsible for his own father's death. How did and, they treat how did they treat him? Uh who Henry Tudor? Yeah. How did uh, they brought up uh, as another son. He seems yeah. to have been brought up very well, highly respected. He had a great childhood the evidence we have from you know people who discussed him as a child suggests he was given a top level education and also he he himself henry as king later said he believed he was kept prisoner there not as in you know i'm behind cages but because i don't have my own freedom of movement mm-hmm. uh, but he was honor- honorably brought up so Henry Tudor had warm memories of his time at Raglan. Uh, he even rewarded Sir William Herbert's wife when he became king because he was brought up well. Yeah. There's an overriding reason for this. William Herbert, the, the two most powerful and greatest Welsh families of the time were the Tudors and the Herberts. But one was Yorkist, one was Lancastrian. What, William Herbert had a daughter called Maud and he wanted Maud to marry Henry Tudor. So... There was very much an element of uniting two families, you know, ironically like York and Lancaster, but in Wales going on. So William Herbert saw great things for his own family, his own descendants through the Tudor blood. So the any any um, hostility doesn't seem to be passed on to the child, basically. Yeah. Uh, in any event, obviously, that marriage didn't go through because, you know, Henry returned, obviously, married Elizabeth of York. Right. But, yeah, I mean, one thing I do speculate on, and I do like to imagine, is, okay, Henry said he was honourably brought up. You know, there were great plans for him. But how did he sit in the hall every day 
looking across at the man who possibly killed his father. Now, again, ironically, William Herbert became much more of a father to Henry Tudor because Henry Tudor never met his own real father who died four months before he was even born. Right. But it's a lot of, it's a lot of you know, great what-ifs and, you know, if only we could know situation about that. That's a weird way of working itself out. So then the next day we're going to the Hampton Court of Wales. What can you tell me about that? Carew Castle, another wonderful castle, pretty much like like Raglan. This one is a little bit different in that it's based on a pond. And if you go around the other side of the pond, you get such incredible views of of Carew Castle. Yeah. Um Carew Castle belonged, I mean as the name suggests, it did historically belong to a family, the Carrows, but it was bought by Resap Thomas, uh, he of Bosworth fame, uh, in the 1480s. And, yeah, in effect, it became known as, I mean, obviously not at the time, but what we now would regard it as, as the Hampton Court of Wales, in yeah. that it was the home of the most powerful figure in Welsh politics of the early Tudor period. Um and it became this great, this great area of, you know, all the bards went there, all the poets went there, the musicians. It was, it was Rhysab Thomas's, you know, number one home in West Wales. Mm-hmm. Now, now Carucas is particularly important to the story of the early Tudors in that Rhysab Thomas in 1507 he held a major jousting competition at Carew. It was to celebrate his induction into the Order of the Garter, which was the greatest honour Henry VII gave to anyone. He didn't really believe in giving out earldoms or dukedoms. Uh, he, 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 the one way Henry VII really showed his favour was the Order of the Garter, because you could only have, I think it's 24 people in there at one time. You have to wait for one to die so it's, to, to get in. So it's very exclusive. He held the Johnston competition to celebrate this and also to celebrate, really, the Tudor dynasty. So 600 knights took part. You know, it was a really huge, uh, a colossal event, really. You know, the kind you'd only ever really see in London, perhaps, not, you know, back, backwater Wales. Yeah. Um, yeah. And intriguingly, there was a scene there that he had two guys dressed up doing a pageant, one as St. David, uh, obviously the Welsh patron saint, and one is St George, uh, the English patron saint. And at the end of the, the end of the, you know, the, the the jousting competition, the two men embraced, and it's this very kind of visual symbol of Wales and England finally uniting as one, which you know, in, in all intents, it did eventually go on to to become. But it was this kind of really, this was the symbol, fifteen oh seven at Carew Castle. The Tudors, the Welsh Tudors, had taken over the English crown, and we were all now at peace. You know, after the wars that went on uh, eight years earlier. The other thing about Carrie that's fantastic, and something I perhaps sometimes unfairly gloss over because it's slightly outside my preferred period, is that in the you know 1580s, so you know a, a century after the Tudors came to the throne. The castle was owned by a guy called Thomas Perrot. Now, Thomas Perrot, there are, again, later rumours that he was actually an illegitimate son of Henry VIII. Uh, you know, 
he had the famous ginger Tudor hair. He had an incredible temper. And there are some people who look at portraits of the men and say that they uh, they look rather similar. But more importantly, Thomas Parrott was a bit of a bit of a you know a wild man, a loose cannon, and he kicked up a fuss many times during the during the reign of Elizabeth I. And she seemed to be very very lenient with him, which again seems to suggest to some she didn't really want to discipline her her half brother, shall we say. Um, Again, it's probably a bit of a reach, that story. But what Thomas Parrott did at Carew was he rebuilt the entire Great Hall. And he rebuilt one of the ranges. And it is, again, pictures will only do it justice unless you see it for yourself, in which case it's far greater um, to look upon. But he rebuilt the whole wing. And it's, again, I think it's one of the most finest examples of an Elizabethan fortress you're going to see, particularly if you stand across the pond on a sunny day and you really capture the sight of it. You almost have this kind of... You can see half of the castle wall is this great medieval fortress and the other half is this wonderful Elizabethan palace. Yeah. That's what we have to thank for a guy called Thomas Parrott who did, however, eventually get executed by Elizabeth but only after many, many years of him uh, causing drama, really. Yeah. Huh. And I tell tell you what, there's one other thing as well, now remember, Caru, is above the entrance of the Great Hall, Rhys of Thomas built a a shield that held three coat of arms and we can still see you know, it's quite fake, but we still see the, the stonework of where this coat of arms was built. Now, the coat of arms featured uh, the arms of Henry VII in the middle, and on either side, the arms of uh, his son, Prince Arthur, and also Catherine of Aragon. Now, this this has led us to really date this coat of arms to either between 1499, when the pair, Catherine of Aragon and Arthur Tudor were betrothed on 1502 when he died. Yeah. So you get to see this actual coat of arms or the, the, the stone remnants of it. And we know this is not just, uh, you know, it's somewhere in the Tudors, you know, it's somewhere within the 16th century. We could pretty much date it to within three years, which is a, quite a fantastic little tidbit, really, yeah. that I survived. Wow. And so then that that's really close to Pembroke Castle then. Uh, and, it, it is, yeah. It's it's about it's about five miles. It's okay. you know, it's what what you tend to get in this little small part of Wales, Pembrokeshire, because Pembrokeshire was on the front lines of the English versus Welsh kind of battles going on throughout the eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth century. You have a lot of castles and a lot of history within. 20 mile radius sometimes I mean the, the castles down there are countless um, but obviously Pembroke being the the big daddy you know the the famous one and yeah. birthplace of the Tudor dynasty if you will Neat. Yeah. and so then we are also then making one more stop in Pembrokeshire to St. David's Cathedral and what's there? Well St. David's Cathedral, it, I mean, I mean, Saint da- it's the spiritual home of Wales. Uh, St. David is our patron saint. 
uh, and we really do celebrate him quite quite well. Yeah. So St David's itself is is where his uh, his cathedral seat was, and it itself is a fascinating cathedral. You know, it's not as large or as grand as a York Minster, for example. But what's particularly great about St David's Cathedral that I like is that it's only a mile or so inland from from the sea. Now, St David's kept on getting sacked throughout the Viking period. The Vikings would sail past, they would see the church, they would dock and burn it down. And I think in the year 999, uh, a bishop got killed and I think it got burnt down a couple of times, which... Mm -hmm. You know, with the year being nine nine nine, these guys must have thought it was the end of days. You know, right. people getting killed. But the point being is that they rebuilt St David's Cathedral in a dip in a valley, so it's not it can't be seen from the sea. So what you get when you get to St David's, which in itself is a bit bizarre because it's it's the smallest city in the UK. I mean, St David's is a village, but technically it's considered a city. So you end up in this really small village and you walk through a gatehouse and all of a sudden it's just there beneath you. You know, as opposed to most cathedrals built up high in the cities, you know, overlooking the town like Lincoln and York, etc. It's built in the valley. So it just suddenly appears before you. You never get to see it beforehand. It's just there. And it kind of, it's breathtaking. You always, no matter how many times you go there, you always stop and you're trapped. Like, wow, picture time. No matter how many times you can go there, twenty times a year, it's always the same. Stop picture time because it's just incredible. Wow. Now, the, the the two things of note really that we have in in St David's, you know, discounting all the Welsh history that's in there, is first of all we have the tomb of Edmund Tudor. Mm -hmm. Now, Edmund Tudor, as we said, died in Carmarthen, and when he died, he was buried initially in the Greyfriars. Mm -hmm. um, now, the Greyfriars. Uh, monastery was dissolved by Henry VIII and many tombs, I mean we must have lost thousands of tombs throughout the country this tomb survived we don't know by who there's no evidence on the orders of Henry VIII but somebody in West Wales decided to save the tomb and it was moved to um, St David's you know, we can speculate the Welsh really were proud of the Tudors. You know, there's no two ways about it. Yeah. Um, and I think somebody has taken upon themselves to maybe, maybe the bishops, maybe the church, you know, let's save this tomb. Yeah. Now, the fact that Owen Tudors in Hereford tomb didn't survive and that this Edmund Tudors tomb was, there's no evidence at least it was saved by Henry VIII has led some to suggest this meant that Henry VIII didn't care about his Welsh ancestry. The Tudors didn't care about right. their Welsh right. Tudor ancestors. But Henry VIII, to be honest, didn't even save himself Henry Fitzroy, his own son's tomb. You know, that was left mm -hmm. to the Dukes of Norfolk. So I don't think we can really say anything about Henry VIII. He didn't really seem a sentimental kind of guy in that no, case. But uh, yeah, Edmund Tudor's tomb ended up right before the altar in St. Um, St. David's Cathedral, which is probably the most, I mean, it's right next to where the shrine of St. David's would have been. And it's probably the most exalted place anyone could be buried in all of Wales. Mm. You know, whoever made that decision gave him 
the number one spot in all of Wales, right next to David's uh, shrine in front of the altar. And it's still there. And it's a great little, great little tomb. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a square. We've we got a, a memorial brass on top. I mean, all the relevant coats of arms on the tomb. You know, the Tudor arms. we got the, the King's arms, Catherine de Valois arms, Jasper Tudor, Edmund Tudor. And it's a, it's as close, I think, as we can get to a, a royal tomb in Wales. It's, you know, other than the ancient Welsh princes that have survived. But certainly, an English, from an English royal point of view, the only one I can think of uh, that's there. And above it, and, you know, above most of the church, there's also, unusually, uh, the nave at St David's is wooden. I mean, obviously it's stone above, but from what you can see, there's a great wooden uh, nave built all the way along the breadth and the width of the church. And it's uh, it's a wooden one, and it was built in 1540. So around the time of the Reformation, so it's a great piece of Tudor you know, woodwork. Uh, I am not aware I've seen anywhere else. You know, normally we're talking these great fan-vaulted naves. Uh, St. David has this unusual wooden one. The next day, then we're going. We're going to talk more about Jasper Tudor. We are, yes, Edmund's uh, little brother. Yeah, and he really was the one who then um, became Henry's protector and kind of made it all happen. I suppose you could argue. What, what can you tell me about just kind of where we're going that relates to him? What a relentless you know, never say die character this guy was. Yeah. Um, which is, on one hand, bizarre because, you know, he didn't really have the background or the upbringing to be this force of nature that he eventually became. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to drive up the coast of, of West Wales, you know, a couple of hours up along the coast, which would have been very similar to the journey Henry Tudor would have taken on his way to Bosworth. And we're going to go up to a place called Harlech. Harlech is on the very west coast of North Wales. And Wales is known as the land of castles. And, you know, I don't want to keep on reiterating the point, but this is another unbelievable castle, you know, a real jewel in the crown. Because it's built 200 feet up on a cliff overlooking Snowdonia, which is the Welsh... Uh, you know, national mountain range. Mm-hmm. So all you've got when you stand on the top of Harlech is on one side the open sea and the other side a mountain range. And you're 200 feet up on a cliff. Um, and it's, for that reason, it, it was impenetrable. Um, now, during the Wars of the Roses, 1461, Edward IV won the crown. You know, he won the battles of Towton um, and Mortimer's Cross and the Lancastrians were gone. Now, Margaret of Anjou escaped and she travelled all the way to Harlech, eventually left there and got to France. This was a castle and a region completely loyal to Jasper Tudor and they didn't care that the Yorkists were on the throne. You know, they were Lancastrians, they were Tudor's men, they're going to stay loyal. The rest of England, the rest of Wales submitted. You know, a few castles up in Northumberland periodically kept, you know, went back and forth. But generally speaking, England and Wales were Yorkist. Edward IV had won. Yeah. But Harlech didn't. It's 
it held out. And in fact, it held out for seven years. So for seven years, the, the Yorkists kept on trying to get Harlech, and they couldn't. Jasper Tudor was coming in, coming in on boat, landing at Harlech, you know, grabbing some of his men, going on raids into North Wales, going back and escaping again. Wow. Now, this only reason this came to an end was because in 1468, you know, it's been seven years of these raids, and Jasper went for it. And he landed, you know, got his men at Harlech, went out to the massive gatehouse, and went, you know, about 60 miles across North Wales. And he got to a Yorkist castle called Denby Castle, and he burnt it to the ground. Mm. He burnt the town. You know, he kind of, he seems to have uh, just gone on one. And this greatly upset Edward, Edward IV. Enough was enough. The man he hired, Sir William Herbert, him of Raglan, gave him thousands of men and told him, go get it. And they did. After seven years, they finally starved out Harlech and the castle gave up. Um, for which William Herbert was given the earldom of Pembroke, which had been stripped from Jasper Tudor. So you can see all these Herberts and these Tudors, yeah. their relationship yeah. is entwined. They're just the two greatest Welsh families of their age. And they are, you know, they're constantly bickering, warring. And this is another one, you know, we got Henry Tudor at Raglan, you know, his guardians come back. Oh, hiya, Henry. By the way, I've taken your uncle's castle and now I'm the Earl of Pembroke. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. what, what kind of conversations are happening at this uh, at this point between, you know, a, a growing up Henry and his, and his new guardian? But nonetheless, Jasper had lost his one stronghold, you know. So he had spent seven years basically doing these raids, you know, insurgency through North Wales. And when you go to Harlech and you stand up on that cliff, the sea on one end and a massive mountain range on the other, you can see why this castle is, it's impenetrable, you know. There's a very famous song that the Welsh sing now called Men of Harlech. You know, it's one of those great uh, Welsh traditional songs. A defiant song. They start singing the Men of Harlech, and it's all about standing firm. You can't defeat us, you know. We will always stand our ground. And yeah. it's come a bit of a Welsh kind of battle him, and that's what it's based off. It's based off those men for seven years just saying, you know, you can't get us, and that was simply because of their loyalty to Jasper Tudor. He must have been some man for them to be willing to do that. Yeah. That's I, I just love how these places are all so close to each other because then that's also by the island of Anglesey where this whole thing starts, right? Well, you know, you would say they're close together. We know uh, Americans like to travel many hours to spots, but there'll be many South Welsh people who would never have gone, who've never been to Harlech. Okay. Um, it, it's it's incredible. I mean, it, you think like, oh, it's only three hours away, but there seems to be a bit of a mental issue with us Brits and our traveling, you know, our three hours. There's people in Los Angeles that I know who commuted to work three hours each way. Unbelievable. <laughs> anyway, so tell, so we're going to be able to see the island of Anglesey because that's relatively close. It is, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying they, these, these are some of the most beautiful drives. You know, we're not talking freeways or motorways. We're talking nice uh, 
sea views, mountain views. Yeah. Um, it could be fantastic. I mean, you know, you could stop off every half a mile and see something incredible with whales being whales. But we, yeah, we'll go to Anglesey, you know, which in itself crossing the crossing the the bridge over the it's a Victorian bridge, the Britannia, which in itself is a going to be a wonderful thing. Um, we will hopefully get, get to go to a village called Penmanes. Penmanes, I mentioned at the start, is that ancestral village where the Tudors were from. Now, all that is there really is a sign saying, you know, welcome to Penmanes, and a sign saying you are now leaving Penmanes, and a telephone mast. But there is one house there that is uh, a 16th century uh you know, you know, building, but it's built on the very site where the original Welsh Tudors lived, and um, which you know gives them the name we call them by the Tudors of Penmanith. This th- th- this place called Plas Penmanith, which is something like you know Penmanith House kind of um, scenario, is you know it's covered in Tudor imagery because it was built during the time the Tudors were on the throne. And they wanted this, you know, not the Tudors, but the guys who built this house really wanted to hark back to um, to the, the start of the story. You know, and inside, by the fireplace, for example, they've recently found a bunch of uh, fleur-de-lises. So, you know, the French coat of arms, which is obviously meant to be taken as a reference to Catherine de Valois, you yeah. know, the, the French ancestress, if you will, of the, of the Tudors. And then the next day, day six, we're going to be in a place that's really super important for Tudor history, right? Conway. We are, yes. Conway, what I like about Conway is it's almost the start and the end, in a way. Um, Conway Castle, another one of these incredible castles that's considered a world heritage site. It is important because it's the first real time we have the Tudors as we know them impact on the English uh, political scene because as you mentioned earlier the Tudors of Penmanith were the first cousins of Owain Glyndur who led this Welsh rebellion mm-hmm. so his rebellion after a year was starting a flag uh, they were struggling to keep them you know the momentum going enter his cousins now on April Fool's Day uh, 1401, April the 1st, the Tudors, two of them at least, decided they were going to capture Conway Castle, which if you look at it and you think, how? Just how, how can you capture these castles? You know, as you've just seen, Harlech took eight years or seven years. Yeah. Uh, we've all seen the Hollywood movies of the, the effort needed to capture castles. And to be honest, generally they were caught by simply starving them out for months on end. Yeah. But these two Tudors... They wanted to capture it, and they were going to capture it. So, according to the, the chronicles we have, what appears to have happened is on the 1st of April, which was a Sunday, the entire English town within were at church. They included most of the guards, most of the knights, etc. Uh-huh. A couple of them went up and knocked on the main gatehouse door, pretending to be carpenters would come to fix something. The guards let them in. At what point they got their throat slit? And the gates are open to a, a band of Welshmen who simply went in and took the castle while everyone was at church. Wow. They burned all the records because obviously what you had at this time in Wales was um, 
English towns and Welsh towns next to them. You know, in that the Welsh were treated like second class citizens. The English lived in the in, in the castle. They had all of the records. They owned all the lands. But so those two Tudors, they simply went in, burned all the records, and of course, you know, back then they didn't have any digital copies. The records are gone. The records are gone. So it was one of these incredible moments in Welsh history where you know a handful of guys have captured a mighty royal English fortress. Yeah, it didn't last, and it couldn't last really. I mean, you know, you you really flicked the nose of the English king there, and you know he came in all guns blazing and got the castle back. Yeah, but it was definitely a you know you'll remember us now moment from the pair, and ultimately probably got them executed. Uh, you know, eight or nine years later, you know, it's kind of thing an English king is not really going to forget. Yeah, no. Across the town, then we have a place called Plasmaur. Uh, Plasmaur kind of translates like you know, big house or big area. Um, and what we have here is a house that was built in the Elizabethan period by a family called the Winds. Now, the Winds, the you know, in 1485, there was one of them at the Ball of Bosworth. He helped Henry Tudor become king, he got lots of money, lots of land. Fast forward a couple of generations later, you know, they're this loaded North Welsh family and they wanted to build a big house that showed everybody. And that was what Plasmara was. It was built, you know, uh, I think, you know, between 1576 and 1586, you know, a 10-year period during Elizabeth uh, the first reign. Um it it survives almost intact. I mean, it's obviously been renovated a little bit, like most of these places have. But I have yet to come across an Elizabethan townhouse bigger or more complete than Plasmar. Mm. Uh, it's incredible. It's just a really fantastic building. And if I had a couple of million going spare, I would buy it. It is. <laughs> I mean, just from the very gate. I mean, the gatehouse leads onto the main road. Yeah, you know, you got these Tudor coat of arms above it with the Welsh dragon. You walk in, you got the courtyard. You have got all these different rooms, and the best thing about them is they've been painted. A lot of these places you go to just either have brick walls or they have them whitewashed white. Right. They painted these walls inside as they believe they would have looked. See, it's so colourful. It's it's fantastic. You know, lots of coats of arms, lots of monograms for you know E for Elizabeth. Yeah. Uh, JW everywhere for John Wynne who owned, owned the house at that point. Wow. And it it really is again, get onto Google, give this give this place a type in Plasmaur, which uh P L A S M A W R and you'll see what I mean. It's yeah. incomparable to anything I've come across. And it's right in the heart of the town as well. It's not some sort of, you know palace that's out in the sticks like a, a Hardick Hall or a you know any other of these big country manors we, we know of. It's yeah. town centre, opens onto the street and obviously for that reason it's quite compact the way it's built but it's really, you know, you've got the chambers, the pantry, the kitchens, it's wow. very, very again, the only way I can really keep it, it's complete it's just yeah. a complete house yeah. which we are you know, they're very few and far between these days. 
That's so great. Um, I'm so excited. I love hearing all of this. I'm just, I'm so excited. Um, <laughs> so, um, and along the way, we're going to have experts and talks and from lots of different people at a lot of these places too. So um, people will be getting more than, more than just you talking as well. So um, not that you're not great too, but uh, <laughs> so did I miss anything? Uh, after that, we're probably going to one, we'll go to one other place as well called Gwydale Castle, okay. um, which is heading back south from the coast um, inland a little bit into the middle of the mountain range. And Gwydir Castle must be one of the most romantic places left in the UK regarding the Tudors. Um, probably more of a modern romantic story in a way, because this was another, belonging to the same family I've just mentioned, the Wynn family. You know, as you can see, these guys were really flashing the wealth. They built this incredible manor house uh, in a place called Gwydir. It fell into ruin. Um, I think it fell into ruin gradually about 1920s mm. uh, it was owned at one point by the Hearst family um, and yeah it just fell into disrepair, collapsed and became overgrown you know all the roof had caved in until the early 90s and a, a couple from London or from England somewhere bought it, you know they, they, they were I think they were hiking or something during that time and they came across it they said they went through all the brambles and all the bushes and they came across the remnants of this old Elizabethan manor. Yeah. Uh, I think one was an artist and one was a, a writer. And they bought it. Ah, that's so And they gradually, the last 20 years, have been set about renovating it, renovating it faithfully. So, you know, they've been in the news quite a bit because they've been trying to get the original wooden panelling. Because about the 1920s, 1930s, all the wooden panelling was taken out, broken up and sold to American investors and so on. Oh, wow. so they've ended up all around the place, you know, in Vegas, New York, etc., museums, and they've been step by step getting them all back. Uh, you know, that's that's a, a great uh, uh, feat to really do because the sheer research having to go through to try and find them. And then, yeah, I mean, it's still a work in progress. It's probably more on the edge of finish now than it has been in recent times. And it is again. Astounding! It's an astounding place, Gwydir Castle. Um, and what's great is that you know it's this romantic story between this young couple in the nineties who bought it and did it up. Yeah. Um, uh, incredibly, it has a priest's hall behind the fireplace. Wow. So it's obviously played a part in the whole Elizabethan yeah. Catholic versus Protestant kind of um, era. I mean, I wouldn't have liked to have slipped into a hall behind a fireplace, but right. some of those priests have to do what they have to do. Yeah. Um, anyone who's recently watched the Gunpowder right. TV series, if anyone's been able to pick that up, um, they, they'll kind of know what was going on. Was it a Was it a Nicholas Owen one? Do you know? Do we know who if it was? Uh, I don't know who it was. Okay. No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I just I would love to see one of his sometime. He was he was a genius with that. Um, okay, so. The, I've just like we could go on forever here, and I would I would love to. And um, I I think people can come on the tour, and then they can have it go on for a, a week, 
or more. Um, a, a week is, is what we're doing here, seven days. So for people who want to learn more, you can go to my website, to englandcast.com slash tours, and I'll put a big thing on the front page too. For people who can't go on the tour, like how can people learn more about visiting Tudor Wales? Do you like have a book or anything like that? I, I do, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it is a book very aptly titled Tudor Wales. And it is all about the Tudors in Wales. I mean, we've discussed today, what, four or five uh, separate places. My book, we have 40 of these places. Uh, I've got them all across Wales, South Wales, Mid Wales, North Wales. And some you will have heard of in the book. You know, everyone's heard of Pembroke Castle. I think many people would have heard of, um, you know, Cardiff Castle, things like that. But I have quite small places in there, proper, where I consider hidden gems. You know, yeah. we've got places um, such as the, the Merchant's House in Tembe. Um, we've got Lamphy Bishop's Palace, uh, Neath Abbey, and so on. There's many little places in there that even Welsh people aren't aware of. Nobody ever thinks of Wales when we discuss the Tudors, which yeah. is bizarre because they were Welsh. Yeah. Uh, you know, we can all discuss Hever. Hampton Court and Stratford, for example, till you know the cows come home. But right. there's so much more out there that we could be looking at, and they've all got something to give. You know, even if it's a ruin, it might have still one lovely little chimney place or a fireplace, I and mean, they're all Tudor history. Everything meant something to somebody, yeah. and look hard enough, and they're always connected back to those kings and queens. If that is what really interest you and um it's more and i'm sure i will come across much more the more like into it yeah yeah yeah. that's so great well thank you so much for um you know for taking the time to walk us through all these places i'm super stoked to go on this tour and i am sure that lots of other people now who are listening to this will also be so be sure to check out the website for information um to get the full itinerary and, and everything like that